Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey, what's up, buddy? How are you? It's good to see you. Matt, great to see you. How is everything? How are you doing? Uh, I'm actually pretty good. Can't complain. Um, other, you know, technology issues aside, we're we're checking in after having um, been really a week or two late on a on a planned episode drop that ended up having some some corrupt data files and essentially I lost most of the episode. So luckily, we have a backup um, that's just been delivered to me. So better late than never. But yeah, that episode where we got together with. Uh, the guys from the Out of Time podcast and Chase Horology four one one. Hopefully, we'll we'll have that salvaged and in the can in the next few days. Well, you let the cat out of the bag already. I think that was a special guest that we were all pretty excited to see. But uh, everybody will be able to to sense the the, you know, the surprise and and sort of sheer enjoyment uh, uh, that we all had when he walked through the door. Erase, erase, erase. Let me see if I can go back and I'll I'll dump that part. I'll drop the audio down or something maybe and be like beep in there or something. Like anyhow. So how are you, man? Doing good. Having some of my own tech issues over here. I feel like that's uh, the hallmark of any podcast that you run into your your tech issues. You, you had mentioned something on a, re- a previous recording that we did. I've got a new machine over here, which I'm actually quite uh, happy with. But, you know, the, every time you turn it on, the first time you turn it on or the first time you, you fire up certain programs, inevitably you have your challenges. So uh, all in all, good. Um, you know, we got some fall-ish weather going on here as uh, folks are getting into sweater weather and, and sort of that, you know, uh, afternoon crisp into kind of morning and, and, and evening co- uh, cool, uh, kind of cool weather. And so things are good. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I am uh, speaking of technology. I'm doing something a little different. I'm recording without the microphone, so this is just going directly into you know the the audio input for my uh, my MacBook. So we'll see how that goes. That usually records pretty high fidelity, but sometimes it picks up some background. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, but we'll in the see. meantime, what do you think about drink check pour check? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I actually had a few things I was going to share with you too. You know, we, uh, it's been a little while since we've touched base and, um, you know, I've been, you know, rewatching bond as is, uh, you know, I think probably a lot of people, especially, you know, cinematography, you know, the, the movie and cinema folks, as well as, uh, a lot of the, the Wiss fam. Um, and Hulu actually has a pretty good back catalog. And so, uh, so far I'm through, gosh, let's see, Dr. No, um, from Russia with love, uh, Goldfinger and the spy who loved me. Um, so I'm, I'm marching through the catalog, which is a, a ton of fun. Uh, and I'll start to pick up on other streaming services or, or pick, you know, fill in the gaps where I need to, but it's been a ton of fun, man. Do you remember, and I, you know, we're, we're probably going to date ourselves here a little bit. Do you remember bond month in the summer? And I can't remember exactly who, who did it, whether it was like, uh, you know, Turner movie classics or one of those cable, 
uh, uh, one of those cable networks that would run, it was almost concurrent or around the same time as like Shark Week when I was young. I was a preteen, probably like, you know, 10, 12. And they would play all the bonds in succession, almost 24 hours a day for like the whole week or the whole month. Do you remember that? I don't, but I would support that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh I'm, man, it was awesome. I'm it also a big, big Bond fan. You know, and that's not surprising, right? Like a lot of people do, especially, you know, in some of our, our connected hobbies, but um, just as a kid, you know, way before, you know, being influenced, you know, uh, by, you know, anything, just loving tuning into that. And uh, so anyway, it's been fun to revisit some of these, which I haven't seen for for a little while and um, really been having a lot of fun with that. And, you know, and then also just recently, I stopped by the um, the Grand Seiko Boutique on Rodeo. Um, I didn't realize they have been there since 2017, um, which is longer than I sort of mem- remembered, but uh, some really nice people over there uh, uh, running the running the show and and being you know very helpful and and sharing a lot of a lot of beautiful pieces, some things that were you know difficult to find at other ads and and elsewhere. So um, anyway, had a lot of fun over there. Anything uh, anything new in your world that we haven't covered of recent? No, not really. I mean, I have not done anything new watch-wise in the past few weeks. Um, I'm jealous that you made it into the Grand Seiko boutique. I've not yet been there. I've I've been pretty spoiled being able to see a lot of things at Feldmar. But I think if you were able to go, you know, and actually catch the boutique, there there must be a lot of really cool stuff. So one day I'll I'll have to make it over there. We'll go together. Totally. Back into our mic. Okay, sorry about that, Greg. We had to pause for just two seconds with a little speaking of technical problems, but we're back. So I think we left off saying that uh, I would like at some point to get to the uh, the Grand Seiko Boutique, but have not yet done so. So I'd like to go sometime. Yeah, we'll do it sometime. And I, and that I was also double checking. It was it was AMC, so American Movie Classics, right? I remember that old cable TV channel. And uh, in the early to mid 2000s in August, they would run James Bond Movie Marathon and they would get you would get two, three, sometimes even five or seven, you know, Bond movies, you know, throughout the, throughout the day. It was, it was fantastic. So, but um, let's shift into uh poor check, wrist check. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, stand by. All right. So I'm actually drinking, uh, this is Smog City's Smogtoberfest. So as uh, you know, I think on our lapis- last episode, well, I guess the last one, that came out, not the last one we recorded, uh, with Jason Heaton. I think I was talking about liking the, uh, the Meritzen beers and I'm doing it again. This is basically smog city, local Southern California, really good beers from these guys. This is kind of their take on a festival lager, a little bit more red, a little bit punchier in terms of, um, uh, kind of the caramel notes, not super bitter, great beer. So here we go into the Oktoberfest mug. I don't know if this audio is picking up. I hear it, and it's fantastic. Nice. You know, what was, uh, uh, I feel like Josh and maybe somebody else was saying that they didn't like the clinking or the can open sound on pods. Was that because they thought somebody else was already doing, or what was the problem with that? No, it was it was Josh, and he said that he felt like when he was listening to these shows in cans, you know, so using, you know, good um, headphones, that it's, it, it, was extremely loud. Got it. Okay. Sorry about that, Josh. Hey, dial down your, uh, your, your, your sound just for Matt's poor check there. Yeah. Right. So anyway, yeah, that's what is in the glass and on wrist today is Blanc Pond Bathyscaph. And this is on, uh, I love this watch. This is on the, um, the Blanc Pond green 
like rubberized sailcloth. And it's just a, it's a fantastic combination. I, I don't know, kind of greens and earth tones suit me. So this is, uh, yeah, one of my favorite watches all year round, really. I saw a picture of that one earlier in our group chat, and uh, I had a feeling I might see it on on screen today, and it, it made me quite happy. Well, I wore it because the green strap totally matches the Perrier, the can of Perrier that I knew I was going to have later today. So I kind of I paired it with that. That's next level spirit of time stuff, there, folks. You know, you're pairing That's, it to your to your soda your your soda water uh, can. That's good. That's really good. Hundred percent. Hey, I. I, uh, I do it for the fans, man, <laughs> which you have a lot of too. Oh, yeah. They, bo- they both like this watch. So, Hey, what are, uh, what are you wearing? What are you drinking? Before, uh, before I get into that, I do want to point out that a few of our really good friends are also, which everybody is, this is not news to anybody, but, um, a few of our good friends are, are deep into the sort of fall seasonal beer scene. I saw a few notes this weekend from, uh, our friends at Overtown, they have an amazing, you know, set of uh, uh, seasonal beers coming up. One's a riff, I think, on their Christmas ale, but it's got a pumpkin spice to it. Sounds fantastic. I want to get over there and check it out. And I think Wing Walker, we saw our friends uh, recently from from over at their shop. And uh, I think they were working on some peated stuff and some other really cool seasonal kind of fall Oktoberfest stuff. And and uh, so shout out to those guys. And, and we'll be in soon to uh, to try them. Yeah, I've actually tried one. They have two variations on the peated beer. And one of them, I think it's the Peat Monster, and that's literally like Lagavulin in a beer. Ah, uh, give, uh, give me, little, give me, give little. Me. No, that's too much for me. But then they have like a, a, you know, they took that and turned up the the peat and smoke to eleven, and then broke off the Daggum knob. Uh, but they have another option that is quite a bit less uh, less smoky, less peaty. That appeals to me. It's good beer there. Wingwalker, I think, has come a long way. It's good stuff. It's fun. That's in you know, uh, Brian, Monrovia, California. Brian from High West Saloon is is uh, has vowed to to get me onto you know some whiskeys and and I told him his his best bet is through you know the peated you know um, the peated stuff and so you know that's that's part of my my commitment though to the podcast is I want to make sure we're representing you know beverages of all kinds you know alcoholic and non alcoholic agave you know whiskey gin rum wine beer all the all of it all the stuff yeah absolutely. I'm so down. in my glass, uh, I'm back to agave, uh, more specifically because a, a shipment just came in. Matt, I know you're familiar with this, and I've mentioned it a few times on the pod, and anybody who follows along has probably noticed um, and paid close attention to. This is the, the Megay May Latte subscription service, and so October's uh, presentation is really interesting. It's a, uh, a Cucha Rio, which if you're not familiar, and may, many people might not be, it, it's really actually sort of outside of the agave realm. And it's more reminiscent of a satol, and and satol plant used to be classified as an agave, but it's sort of been given its own designation, and it's more common in the north, Chihuahua, um, and uh, Sonora, um, and some places in the north. And so, but there are some of them in the south, and so it's got a very different flavor profile. It's it's kind of gr- a little more grassy, a little bit kind of hay. Uh, it's very earthy. It's a little dry. And I actually got a Cucharillo last year um, from from Melate from one of my favorite uh, um, maestros. His name is Hermogenes. And uh, so I'm excited to put these side by side. But this is really fantastic. Uh, the notes say that the the process and how they do it in Oaxaca versus how they might do, uh, distill the Satol up north uh, is different. And this is a little more approachable, a little sweeter. 
and um, just a little more balanced, I would say. Um, but it's super interesting. Very, very interesting. And this is kind of, you know, we're taking it up to kind of Agave Spirits, you know, 201 here. Right on. I think one of these days I've got to just make the commitment to getting on board with, you know, something like that. And I, you know, that guy I think is probably at least as good as anybody else. So I've got to try that. I was a little put off by the, um, what seemed to me like, like the real kind of heavier focus on, uh, mezcal. Cause that's just, I'm not sure if that's quite my bag yet, baby, but, um, you know, the, uh, the good tequila, you know, I'm all about it now after you've converted me. So we've got you. Yeah. And we threw you in the deep end with that tasting set, which was really fun, but it was also pretty, pretty heavy stuff. And, you know, Miguel Milate is awesome. You know, there's a discount code connected to my, you know, time and tequila account. So, you know, people use it if you want, it saves you a couple bucks and you're getting what, you know, stuff that I'm drinking, uh, on the wrist is the, uh, the big crown pointer date in bronze 80th anniversary. Um, haven't put it on a little while. I also have some green on, and so it felt right. I went green dial. I went green shirt. I knew you went green over there. You know, kind of, I think that was our, our, our podcast, uh, partnership, um, you know, telepathy. And so, you know, it's just fun. It feels right too. You know, the temperature changing, got the real bronze, uh, the real, you know, warm patina action going on and I'm coming up on, it's almost 12 months of owning this. And so I think I should do some sort of like a patina diaries post. You know what, actually that, that would probably be a lot of fun just because I, I have not seen that watch in, in several months. And, you know, I remember kind of getting to test drive it. And thanks for that, by the way. And wondering, okay, well, you know, I've had it for a week or two. What's it going to look like in two, three, four months? So that would be fun to kind of do do a low speed, you know, maybe do a time lapse video diary of it, like take a picture every week or something. Yeah, I think what, I have them saved. Like. I hope I do. All right, cool. Anyhow. Yeah. So that's the, uh, the risk check poor check. Um, do you want to dive into main topic? Yeah, let's, let's get into the main entree here. You know, I, I've heard a few, uh, recent podcasts and, and it's, this is not a new topic per se, but sort of the, you know, what grinds my gears. I know watch, uh, whiskey and watches had done that recently. Uh, I heard a few other podcasts, you know, things that, you know, uh, kind of bother you or, or whatever. And so, you know, this is, this is a, a topic, you know, that we love talking about. It's easy. We could go on this for, for hours. Um, but I wanted to shift the, the, the thought process a little bit and call it, you know, watch dogmas that you and me and the spirit of time don't subscribe to, you know, what are some things out there that exist in the watch fam, right? The watch community, uh, that have sort of been propagated either by collectors or maybe by, you know, journalism and media, uh, or just kind of social media in general, or, or even just your kind of small collector group, you know, whoever you talk to about, about watches and, and, and things. And so we came up with a, a number of topics, um, that are sort of, you know, dogmatic apparently in, in, in the collecting community, we're going to toss them out there. You and me are going to respond to them and see kind of how we feel about them. You know, do we agree? Do we not? What do you think, Matt? Let's do it, man. I'm ready to, uh, get my iconoclast on Smash right. some of that received wisdom. Smash it. Here we go. First topic, unfit for duty. And what I mean by that is dive watches don't belong on leather. What do you say? I think that is uh, unvarnished. I don't know. Can you varnish bullshit? Uh, that is <laughs> that. Yeah, no, that's that's a that is a garbage take that you can't wear a dive watch on leather. Um, the original dive watches did not come with a bracelet. Um, that was, that's, I won't say that's a relatively new phenomenon, but, um, you know, the, uh, 
I don't know what they called them back then, but the the incursari, the you know, like the Italian frogmen, uh, if they were true to form and wearing panerai, you know, back then uh, in in the 1940s, th- I'm, I'm confident those watches did not have metal bracelets and probably not rubber either. Um, so yeah, who cares? I think a lot of the best dive watches look really, really good on leather, and that's really part of the fun. Let's face it, you know, as it's been said a million times, for ninety nine point what nine nine percent of us, these watches aren't even getting wet, let alone you know doing any kind of submersible duty. So yeah, I'm I'm all about it. I I wear a lot of dive watches on leather. This. You know, this, the Blanc Pond I'm wearing now, now granted, this is sailcloth, so it's a little more fit to purpose, but, um, you know, the, I'd say probably the vast majority of these watches are sold without the bracelet. It's fine. Yeah. I don't, I don't see a problem with it. I'm with you. I think, uh, we had a really fascinating conversation with, uh, with Jason Heaton, of, uh, of many places, but, you know, most notably probably, uh, you know, gray NATO podcast. And of course, uh, Hodinkee fame and, uh, really fantastic episode, by the way, our, our, by, f- I mean, really one of our most, uh, listened to and well re- received episodes, you know, they've all, you know, we've gotten great feedback on, on all of our episodes, but really that one really stands out. Yeah. So not surprising. Crazy. That was, that was great. Thank you, Jason, for the shout out, by the way. Yeah, that was really fun to hear. Um, but uh, it, it hit me too when he said, hey, you know, I change watches all the time. If maybe if I'm wearing this type of watch during the day, uh, by the time I go out to do, you know, another activity or I'm going to be hiking or I might be in the water, I might change my watch. And, uh, you know, the truth is, you know, just you, you, the the, wear, the watch you wear, you know, doesn't have to be the one watch, do everything watch uh, all the time. And sometimes we have things that do different purposes. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, wear what the hell you like. Yeah, if you why like, not? If you like, yeah, if you like leather on divers and it looks good, then wear it. That's great, man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, um, I've gotten a number of my custom made straps from Vintager straps. This is Micah Dirksen up in Northern California. He's up in Napa. And he goes so far as to give a description for each of the, like, the types of leather that he uses on his website. And he describes, like, the suitability for water suitability for swimming with it um and how that leather reacts to water how quickly does it dry out does it absorb water does it change colors all of that stuff it's you know he goes he leans into it and you know that's i've i used to have panerai watches and i got my straps from him and i went swimming with those watches not frequently but i did it's you know they they survived i survived the strap survived it's fine Life went on, um, and that I've 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 experienced you know some of your vintage straps, and and they really are fantastic. Those are great straps. Um, next topic: no speedy is no option. That's a hashtag, right? Uh, you know, every collector must have a speedmaster in their collection. What do you say? Okay, so I'm I'm closer to accepting this as a as like a premise um, than I am with the the leather on dive watches thing. I mean, I clearly I think you can you can have a collection without a Speedmaster, and you can enjoy this hobby and you can be legit and everything. Um, I do think it's a good idea that if you're in the hobby long enough and you have enough watches that at some point you should try to experience one. They, they are kind of a special thing in terms of how they wear, 
you know, they're an important watch, you know, and I'm making the inverted commas here. A Speedmaster professional moon watch is an important watch in the, in the pantheon of, of cool watches. Um, doesn't mean you have to have it. Doesn't mean it's for everyone. They are kind of sterile. I actually had one years ago and it was a relatively modern, you know, production watch and just on its Speedmaster bracelet, it was just a little too sterile for me. And I grew tired of it and got rid of it and didn't miss it. But what I found is that the Speedmaster Pro format that I really liked were the older ones. And that's one of the few places where I do like to go vintage. They just have a different kind of a warmth and a different vibe. The bracelets are different or you have them, you know, off the bracelet and on different, you know, leather options and stuff. And they're great watches, but you definitely don't have to have one, but you should. You know, I, um, I, I can, I don't have one. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, I don't believe quite in that. I wouldn't say I have, you know, designs on, on adding one. Um, I'm not opposed to it. Um, you know, and I have a few friends, um, who are maybe you wouldn't call, you know, serious, um, you know, wisp people, you know, people who aren't eating, breathing, you know, drinking, sleeping, um, thinking about watches like many of us are. And, uh, so a lot of times they think, you know, speedy is a, is a great option and, and, and that's something they're familiar with and, and I absolutely support it. And, um, you know, if I had one, I'd be super stoked about it. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's gonna, it's, it doesn't, doesn't keep me up at night. Same. Yeah. I know a lot of, uh, actually a good friend of ours and we've, uh, you know, we've talked about him on the podcast. A lot of people know him, Horology 411. And I think he kind of agrees with me that there's a, a big difference between modern Speedmaster and older Speedmasters, the older ones being more appealing. But I think there's also kind of a dividing line between like, you know, Speedmaster Pro versus the the newer automatics, you know, with the, the coaxial movements. I think those are those are big watches, maybe a little too big, but they're visually much more interesting watches to me. Um, and then, uh, the Mark twos, I love the Mark twos. Yeah. And I agree. if, if I had room in the box and you know, money was no object, as you know, I have a birth year Speedmaster. I'm not getting rid of that. And I don't know if I can really justify having more than one, not being a Speedmaster collector, but the Mark twos are, are fantastic. And that's just a different animal, but that's another kind of thing. You know, when we talk about Speedmaster, there's a, a lot of different options, you know, from the reduced and the, uh, you know, like the Mark forties and the newer automatics and, you know, pre-moon and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and on top of that, Hey, I mean, you know, plus one for being able to walk into, you know, your, your closest AD or boutique or wherever and being able to buy one. I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, and it's got some cachet with, you know, folks who are newer to the hobby or, or maybe, you know, they do have one watch and you can actually go get it. Uh, we saw the new one at Feldmar a couple weeks ago and I mean, it's beautiful, man. That's an absolutely great piece. Yeah. Big, big plus one on being able to get one either, you know, on any given day or, you know, worst case is you're going to have one ordered in and you might wait a few weeks, but there's no waiting list nonsense. There's no, you know, inflated price nonsense. The Speedmaster, I'll give it this. I mean, is every bit as important again in air quotes as the Submariner and to my mind, actually much, much more important, um, you know, is a, a watch in history, uh, you know, it, but it doesn't have any of the baggage of the Submariner. It doesn't have any of that, um, you know, kind of gauche, nouveau riche 
kind of whatever that baggage is. Yeah. So yeah, big. But, uh, any of the baggage of the crown itself, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Today, I mean, when <laughs> when the entry level OP with just a, a slightly nicer colored or unusually colored dial is now fetching like sixteen or seventeen thousand, it's just you know, thanks Instagram. That's just a flex piece. It's not a particularly great watch. You know, this it's a steel watch. And sorry, rant off, but obviously no, I could, no. Let me I let me take us on, on another tan another tangent. Somebody sent to me today. There's a new Timex that got released. It's it's got a fluted bezel. It's a day date. I mean, it basically looks like a like a president almost, and it, and it comes in a Tiffany blue. I said, wow, you know, you really you really could do a lot of things if you want to, you know, go down market and and uh, you know capture sort of you know the zeitgeist. If you, <laughs> it's great. I would love to see some some really well-heeled popular influencer buy something like that and just put that everywhere on social media and just be like, F you, you know, watch world. This is my F you watch. It costs a hundred dollars or whatever. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's, that's the watch Dave Chappelle would wear. Oh, I haven't seen the new special, but I know it's, uh, it's been radioactive and controversial. So, um, I, I plan on catching it. Um, Next topic, how do you GMT? And I mean by that, true GMT, this is the dogma, right? True GMT is inherently better than caller GMT. Uh, Yeah, I think if you're a pilot in the 1960s, true GMT is 100% better. But yeah. And tell us us what we mean by that. Yeah, so uh, the the utility of a jumping uh, local hour GMT originally, the, the reason that would be good, it's not just for a traveler, but it would be the idea that, um, you know, back in the, in the 50s and 60s, and I guess early 70s, really, you know, now you have, it's not merely air travel, but jet travel. So, you know, you can be on, a, uh, on an aircraft as a pilot, as a crew. Um, and so, you know, this, this would apply to the air crew and the in-flight. So like the, you know, the flight attendants and stuff like that too, you can be going from time zone to time zone to time zone throughout the day. And the reason that, that, uh, GMT or depending on the, the era that you're talking about, this is either Greenwich mean time or Zulu time or UTC uni- uh, universal time. Um, uh, it's all the same thing, but in, in aviation globally, everything works on that standard time. And so when you're on the radio and you're flying over ORD, Chicago, if you're a pilot, you know, transiting their airspace and you're talking to center, if you're needing to make any references to time on the radio, you're not talking about local time. You're talking about, you know, uh, GMT. And same thing when you're taking off and landing, if you're communicating on company frequency with, you know, other, either other aircraft or company locations throughout the world, that's the time zone you're talking about. And it, the utility is having that be a constant reference, but that you can just with, you know, one click, two clicks, change the local hour every time your wheels down at a new field. So if you, you know, if you were flying a 707 from Los Angeles and then you stopped at Houston Hobby or whatever, or it, I, I, I don't know if it's George Bush now or whatever, I haven't flown through there in forever. And then you flew to Miami and then from Miami to like Caracas, you know, over the course of a long trip, you can operate on one time zone for the radio and for your paperwork and for your intra-crew communication. 
And then every stop you make when you're referring to, you know, the local time outside of, you know, the cockpit needs, you have the ability to just pop that back and forth. If you're just a traveler who's going to Europe for a week, you're probably going to rehack your watch when you get off the airplane anyway. And if you have something like a, a Zen 856 UTC or, you know, a, uh, uh, let's say a, a UTC watch from Oris or from any number of other brands, I don't think there's really that big of an advantage to be able to pop back and forth. You know, you've really got to be some kind of jet setter. The reality is that the, that quote unquote true GMT was made for pilots, not for travelers. You know, I, I was just thinking about this as you were going on, you know, Bond really could have um, benefited from from wearing a GMT master rather than a sub. And I, I know he comes out of the, you know, out of the British Royal Navy, but, um, you know, I don't think he was going to be sacrificing too much water resistance there. And, you know, he, he's bouncing around quite a bit. Oh yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of utility, I think. And if it was everything being equal and let's face it, when I say everything, I mean, cost, if cost is equal, I'm, I'm going to take a jumping hour, you know, UTC function, but you know, I don't look down on any other kind of arrangement. I mean, heck, probably for most people, if you're talking about like being on the same continent and traveling back and forth, probably the best arrangement is a 12 hour bezel, you know, that just makes it easy. So anyhow, yeah, that's my, that's my take on that. I like it. Um, I think I'll subscribe to that one. Um, true or false AR anti-reflective coding AR is a feature. So I think what you mean by that, right, is that there, I, you know, you, it's funny. I don't hear this nearly as much as I used to hear this in the in the forum days, because now, of course, everything is sort of Instagram based. But in the forum days, you'd hear a lot of people poo pooing AR, um, especially the Rolex fanboys, because it would scratch, you know, and, and that's kind of true. But now that everybody takes pictures of their watches and everything, you know, they do it for the gram and everything is a flex. Mm, you know, AR is really helpful, I think, for uh, for taking photographs and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It depends. If it really bugs you seeing swirlies on your crystal, you know, because you you do this, you you can't see this, but I'm doing the thing where I'm using the, the shirt tail basically to just wipe off a smudge on the, on the watch. If that's the kind of thing that's going to drive you batshit insane, sorry, I'll edit that out maybe. No, I um, think we're PG. I think we're definitely yeah. PG rated then, you know, maybe for you, it's not a feature, but for the rest of us, I think it's nice, um, you know, to be able to have that anti-reflective coating. And I like it. Some, now, some companies definitely do it better than others. Um, but yeah, I like it. It's a feature. You know, this isn't, I don't think this is really shocking, but um, what I found is I keep one of those uh, glasses or sunglasses kind of um, uh, microfibers yep. around. And that is, I mean, Sometimes the shirt, you know, the shirt tail work, uh, you got to work it a few times or, you know, maybe, you know, put a little elbow grease into it. But those microfibers, man, they are awesome and they make that job quick, easy and pretty effective. Yeah, totally. I tried to do the same, but uh, I'm not always that disciplined. Well, hey, let me flip it on you. How about I take one or two of these and throw this your way? Because I think this next one, you you have some thoughts. Okay, so uh, 36 is always better than 39 in terms of case size. Is it? In other words, smaller is better. Is it? Is it? Um, yeah, you're right, actually. I, I did want to riff on this one for a little while. Um, 
I, I, I am very appreciative that the sort of watch collector community has swung the pendulum back from the 42s, the 44s, 45s and bigger. Uh, and, and, and quite frankly, I think the market has, has let manufacturers know we're back over here again, right? We don't need to be huge risk presence uh, all the time. That being said, I don't think that smaller is inherently better than, you know, than the larger format. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think about the, the new Rolex Explorer that came, well, new, the, the most recent Explorer that got released and everybody was super excited and stoked that it was back to 36. And, and, and I think it's a great thing. I really do. Uh, does that mean it's better just because it's 36? I, I don't know. Um, you know, summer, uh, summer Eskimo loves to remind me there's a 36 millimeter Railmaster of my, uh, 2502 ref. And I say, that's great. <laughs> I love it. It's great. I like that one too, but guess what? I like my 39.2 millimeter as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess it's in our nature as watch people to be fickle about everything. I'd love it if we started seeing some oddball sizes that were kind of Goldilocks-ish, you know, like 37.5 or something I, like that. But yeah. You, you took the words right out of my mouth, Matt. I think quite frankly, one of my favorite of my, just what I own, one of my favorite fitting watches. And of course everything comes into just case dimensions and case design. I have my cosmic Seamaster 2000 is 38 millimeters. And I, I think that is a beautiful, beautiful sweet spot. And all this is to say is it's all personal preference. And what I think I'm trying to get at is 36 is not inherently better than anything else or just because it's a smaller format. And I think, you know, it matters what you like, what fits well on you, but also what the watch design calls for. Yeah, I think that's fair. Cool. Well, I agree. Basically, I think the other thing to keep in mind is what kind of watch. You know, if you're talking about a dive watch, I think you can go down to maybe 38 before you start having issues with the size of the crown getting too small and stuff like that. Um, but, I, you know, and then a, a pilot's watch, especially a pilot's chronograph, I probably wouldn't want one smaller than 40. Yeah, just because, again, you've, you've got a lot of information on that dial. I, yeah. I can't imagine a 37 millimeter pilot's chronograph. That's a good point. And let's That's not forget, it. you know, and you look at when you're, when you're doing, you know, your vintage shopping and you come across, you know, jumbo, uh, vintage, that's like what, 36, 37, 38, uh, maybe 39. And, and those are super desirable because people, you know, you we're love, you know, of course we're, if we're shopping vintage, we love all that that brings to the table, but we still like some of the modern ish proportions. And so, all told, you know, 36, I'm glad we've shifted sort of the market back into sort of, uh, you know, pre 2000s sized oversized craze. But at the same time, you know, in my mind, 36 is not inherently greater than 39 or 40. Agreed. All right, dude, next one. Never say polish again, trying to riff on the bond title, but, um, you like what yeah, I did there? I do. I do. Uh, yeah, it always a bad idea to polish a watch. What do you think? I don't think so. I, you know, we're we're in we're in uh, vintage is having a moment. It's been having a moment. Maybe it's not fair to say a moment. It, it's had its it's it's had a, a a fairly significant window, and you know the 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 really dialed in pun intended uh, vintage crowd will remind us. You know. Uh, original condition, right? We don't want to, you know, it's preferable not to be polished, uh, not to be restored. And I agree with that to a certain degree. And I've heard, have had watches serviced. Um, but I've also decided to polish some of them. I've had, I've decided to restore some aspects of it. And I think what I'm getting at is it just depends. You know, if you're going to keep that piece forever, uh, I think you have every right to, to polish it if you want to. 
um, or, or restore any aspects of it outside of just, you know, simple maintenance, um, components to it. Uh, you know, if you bought it and you weren't the original owner, maybe you want to put all the scuff marks on it that you're going to have then for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And and you want to kind of start fresh with what you owned it from when the point that you owned it. And the other part I wonder is, you know, I was thinking about cars and I want to throw this back at you and also hear what your thoughts are on it, on it are, you know, when, when we're, when we're watching some of these beautiful car auctions, you know, what, what's the car community say about it? Does, does everything always have to be untouched original condition? I think sometimes that, you know, a beautifully restored, uh, car, uh, in, in the right way with a lot of kind of original kind of, uh, uh, ideas in mind is super desirable. And so, you know, you, and you think about how watches were serviced, you know, 20 years ago, 15, 20, 30 years ago, nobody cared, cared any about this. Uh, it wasn't important. What was important is that your watch worked, that it was, you know, current and, 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 and when it left the watchmaker that it was, uh, in the condition, you know, that they wanted it to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think really probably the rule more accurately stated would be not never polish, but it's never over polish. And so for me, I think, you know, probably that general rule springs out of just being, you know, cautious. If you don't really know or trust, you know, whoever it is that's restoring your watch, doing the work on the watch, probably better to just leave it alone. And I would agree with that. I think also though, that, um, it depends on the watch in question. Some watches have really simple kind of flowing architecture and the, you know, the edges are not particularly hard. You could probably get away with like a light to moderate polish on a watch like that. Whereas other things, you know, where you're really going to lose metal or you're going to lose like, you know, a real clean edge. Um, I'd probably rather just say, Hey, let's just leave the dings in it unless it's really bad. And then that gets into that whole thing about, okay, do we, you know, do we start to add uh, material, add mass into these nicks? You know, there, there are techniques to do that. Um, you know, but that's a whole other can of worms. That's not for now. But in general, I say I would cautiously agree with the whole don't polish thing. But if you know what you're going to get, if you have a sense of, you know, trust in the person doing the work or if the watch is um, conducive to it, I'd say, yeah, go for it. And on top of that, if you have a super, listen, if you're dealing with something super rare, um, or even just, you know, hard to find, you know, really a beautiful example of something, maybe that's a different conversation. If we're talking about sort of even, I think about my 16, 7, 10. great watch. I love it. Uh, there's a bajillion of them. And so my watch is not going to be worth more whether or not it was unpolished in 50 years, because guess what? It's not that rare. Yeah, I suppose that's true. You know, we'd love to think these things are all super special and they're going to make us a million dollars or whatever, but please. You know, I'm not talking about a double red C, you know, you know, double red sub here. I mean, it's, 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 we're talking about different stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. All right. Well, you talk about uh, your GMT master, which has the, uh, the Cyclops for the date. Let's talk about date windows um, to date or not to date. What do you think? Yes or that no is- on, on dates? That is the question. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm 50, 50. Um, I, I like having the date as an actual function. I look at it often. I think a lot of us probably do. I think there's plenty of opportunities and executions of watches that do not need a date. And when they don't have them, it really elevates, I think the execution of the dial 
uh, and its layout. I think quite often watch manufacturers are pretty lazy with the execution. You know, you, you see very few people match the date window uh, color to the dial color or, or really be thoughtful about it outside of just making it black or white. And, um, but probably my biggest pet peeve, right, is, is if you the say the 430 thing. date, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to say it. Don't put it there. It doesn't have to be there. Were you actually going to say that for real? Yes, absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't have to go there. And one time, one out of 10 times is it executed well. Oh, uh, okay. So like you, I actually appreciate the date feature. I'd rather have one, a watch that has a date and is really well executed and well integrated and doesn't disrupt the overall dial design. Um, but obviously that is hard to do. I like the fact that my Speedmaster, for instance, doesn't have one. It's going to be hard to get a, a good date anywhere on that dial without disrupting anything. On the other hand, the watch that I'm wearing right now, you know, uh, Blancpain Bathyscaphe, this is, you know, what everyone says they love to hate. This has got a 430 date window. I think this is, you know, particularly well done, but I actually would rather have a moderately well executed date aperture at 430 or at six that doesn't disrupt the rest of the dial than to have a really good one at three that chops off, you know, a, uh, one of the indices or that, you know, if it's, if it's got like, you know, Arabics on it, that it chops the Arabic in half or whatever. So another good example would be the Omega, the newer Omega Seamasters, the Seamaster Pro. I have, you know, one of those as well. And that's got that six o'clock date window. I love that for dial symmetry. The dial window is as good as the rest of the watch is, and it's great. It's not very well executed. It's just not, you know, it's very you know, they just cut a hole and it's, it's not well chamfered. It doesn't have a surround or anything like that. I think that's because it's, it's a ceramic, um, dial, but having it at six o'clock, it's so inoffensive and out of the way. Uh, you know, I overlook it. So that's where I, I land on that. Call me a creature of comfort. I can handle things at three, six, nine. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I, I kind of get a little worked up about it. Well, you should take another drink. Fine, I will. <laughs> All right, man. Last one. And this will bring us into really maybe our like our closing topic too. Um it, it you know, house rules, in-house versus what, you know, outsourced at a at all. I feel uh I feel like I was a big I felt like I was right in the middle of of this, which and a lot of people will probably feel similarly. You know, everybody clamored. We were saying we need in-house. We need in-house, uh, and it was it sort of proved maybe your watchmaking chops or your commitment to 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 controlling you know to the vertical, you know, control of of sort of your whole process. And I I think you know a lot of the manufacturers responded to that and probably saw opportunity, of course, uh, for you know for for kind of kind of sending some of the prices you know, uh, North, um, you know, the, to justify, of course, the R and D that, that goes into it. And, and of course the increased manufacturing costs, but the, we've all, the watch communities kind of swing back on the pendulum a little bit and saying, Whoa, uh, maybe in-house is better, but maybe it's not just because it's in-house doesn't inherently make it better. And quite frankly, it kind of locks you into sort of the service program and regimen of, of the particular manufacturer. 
And maybe there's actually quite a benefit to having a watch that anybody, like you say, like you love to say, that anybody can wrench on. And so, you know, in-house, pretty cool. I definitely commend anybody that goes after that and, and can pull it off and does it and does it well. Um, but maybe as opposed to maybe three or five or three or five years ago, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, a slam dunk better proposition. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's at least one, um, one of the, the bigger like storied Maisons, right. For, and I won't mention the name, but they're, they're widely regarded, uh, you know, as being a great in-house producer. They've made movements for a lot of other companies. Um, they currently make, or I think, you know, they help to make a lot of the movements for other marks in, in their overall, like, uh, uh, holding companies umbrella, but the, the movements that they make, the in-house movements that they make for the type of watches and the price ranges that we buy are, to my mind, not particularly special. They're not particularly amagnetic. They're not particularly accurate. They don't have particularly long power reserves. Um, there's really nothing special about it. In fact, many of them are quite a bit shorter than the new industry standard, and they are not all that easy to get serviced outside of the group, and they're expensive you know, very expensive in some cases. Um, so I'm like, well, where's, where's the value? And, and both of, I, in my opinion, both of the big, you know, power player groups, right. Swash and, um, and Richemont have brands like that where they're, mm -hmm. they, you know, they have in-house movements. And when you look at the, the everyday watches that they make with those movements, I kind of shrug my shoulders. I'm like, well, what's, where's the value add to having it be in-house other than it's just in-house it's okay great it, it, you know it costs significantly more for what maybe two extra hours of power reserve versus a 2892 yeah yeah so anyway yeah that's that's my take but speaking of that and we're gonna this will probably be our last real topic um you know i think the real watch news this week at least for me you know my hobby horse is uh is bremont and all of the weird uh, you know, unusual hatred that they get and boy, they're getting it some more. So they finally came out with, uh, or they announced a manufacturer movement. They're being very careful to not describe it as in-house. Uh, most of the, the IP, uh, is coming from, you know, another organization from THE plus they essentially bought the intellectual property, both on the manufacturing side and on the, the design side. Uh, but they are are producing a significant chunk, and my understanding is that the the amount of the the actual you know the components is going to continue to increase. Probably, you know, I don't know that if they'll ever get to a place where they're making you know the springs and the the you know the balance wheels and that whole assembly. But right now, it's you know it's uh, bridges and plates, which is a lot of it. I mean, you know, the going train is just, you know, thin little wheels. They're not doing that. Um, and they're probably never going to be doing screws and jewels, but they're making a big chunk of this movement themselves. And I think the idea is as time goes by, they're going to take on more and more of the manufacturing. So anyway, bottom line is that's really cool. I think, um, you know, but it's, uh, people are absolutely losing their mind. I think the, the commentariat in the various places, the, the usual places has been, I think a little bit more respectful lately, which is kind of cool. Um, but uh, there are definitely still people coming out of the woodwork like, no, that's not theirs. That's you can't call that in-house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But 
it's going to be neat to see where they go. You know, I congratulate them. I think this is pretty cool. It seems like they've really taken a long time to get this done because they want it right. I think for serviceability and for modularity and, um, everything that I've, I've seen, I try to read between the lines on this and follow other sources. It seems like it's going to be a pretty good movement. Um, and my hope is that it doesn't add too much to the price of the watches when they start adding it to their core lines, you know, probably next year, but that's, uh, that's cool. Yeah. And you know, I think for me, quite frankly, I think Hodinkee had great coverage of it, uh, seemed to be pretty well, um, healed and, and sort of, you know, recognizing, you know, the, uh, all the work and, and kind of the celebratory aspect of, of, you know, Vermont, you know, being able to do this while at the same time, um, you know, recognizing the challenges, but, uh, but also the transparency really just, it seemed like there was a pretty fair coverage of the whole thing to be, you know, quite frank. Um, so, you know, go there or wherever else you like to what consume, you know, consume your watch content and, and sort of catch up on all the technical details and the backstory. If you're not, you know, super familiar with it. Um, you know, when we talked to Cameron, uh, Weiss, uh, in episode 11, uh, Weiss watch company, it becomes quite clear that even when you make the commitment to go quote unquote in-house, you know, going off of our last topic too, uh, it's really hard to do, you know, from soup to nuts, the whole thing. Um, and very few people do that. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, I think the gray netto did a really nice job this week talking to some of the folks from Vermont. Um, you know, the dirty truth is probably not that many, if quote unquote, anybody is really truly doing everything themselves. Uh, you know, we have a few of the, you know, the usual suspects that people think probably do almost all of it, if not all of it. But outside of that, you know, I don't think that anybody can say with a lot of conviction that everybody's doing it all the way. Um, and so it's pretty cool. I think it's probably something to celebrate and, uh, you know, we'll see how it bears out, you know, through the rest of the lineup, but, um, there was some really good coverage on it this week and, and I did appreciate folks painting, you know, a fuller picture. Uh, you actually talked to some folks that were at the, at the launch celebration or launch party. I did. Yeah, actually I was, um, he doesn't know I'm going to mention him here, but, uh, Hey Dan, I was talking to Dan C from timely moments. We had Dan on also on one of the, one of our transatlantic solo missions. And yeah, he and I were talking live while he was there. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. So he, um, was talking to me live and, sending me pictures and and that sort of thing, giving me some running commentary. And he'd actually mentioned, maybe this will be sometime something we can do, you know, in a soon upcoming future episode, but it would be awesome to debrief, debrief with him. Um, and yeah, I think ultimately the last thing I'll, I'll put a bow on the Vermont thing by saying, it seems to me that they've learned that they are, it's just a fact. They're just going to be judged more harshly than anybody else. So they're being so much more transparent than anybody else. You know, they're, there are some really cool, fun watch companies that have in-house movements relatively new um, that I feel pretty confident they have the exact same story, um, but they're not telling us that. And and most consumers are not demanding that we be told that story. We just take it on on faith that uh, you know they have all of their own little elves in their own little cave and in, in somewhere in either in you know. Uh, Neuchatel or uh, Geneva or, you know, Holstein or wherever, and that they do everything themselves and nothing is done by anybody else. And it's all their ideas. And like you say, soup to nuts. I, I'm confident that's not true. Anyway, that's my, my two cents. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, again, 
it, there, you know, there's, there's recent history that suggests that other folks have, you know, made missteps, um, Todd Hoyer being one of them notably. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, don't judge too, judge too harshly, um, without getting sort of the full story. Yeah, totally. I have a fun story about that Tag Hoyer thing, by the way. Next time we'll we'll get to it. It, All right, it we'll pin takes that too one. long. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so why don't we get to just final notes and recommendations and we'll we'll blow this pop stand, dude. Sounds good. I got a couple of them. Um, I think you're going to like all of them. Uh, the first one is um, a friend of ours uh, and, and sort of a, a friend and a well-known person in, in, in the uh, watch community has launched uh, a new podcast, right? And you sort of, I think, alerted folks to this. And, and I got a chance to tune in this weekend or this week, excuse me. And that was uh, Wrist Cheese Radio uh, with uh, uh, Brodinky and, and I believe his buddy Schmidt or Schmitty. Um, and so that was really cool, you know. Um, Really cool episode. It sounds like they're going to do some fun stuff. Kind of all the gloves are off and uh, they're going to be talking about a bunch of things that maybe people don't talk about often enough or, you know, things that they're maybe quote unquote afraid to say. So that was a good recommendation from you. And, and I did tune in this week. So I wanted to give those guys a, a shout as they're as they're launching things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the extent that, you know, we have, um, you know, overlapping listeners and i'm sure that that is probably true to some extent i i definitely encourage people to tune in um bro and his buddy and again you know what i'm really sorry because i i don't remember but i think you're right i think it is schmidt or schmitty uh, that should be a cool combination because brodinky's got i would say pretty um pretty insightful like acerbic wit right you know he's a great great maybe the great watch meme page and um it seems like his counterpart has got some you know, industry insider experience. So that should be cool. I'd also say, you know, uh, if you haven't already, if you listen to our podcast and you haven't listened to whiskey and watches, those guys are, they also have a lot of kind of overlapping interests, but please give them a listen. They're a lot of fun. And they were kind enough to shout us out last week too. Yeah, that was a really good episode they did with uh, the guys from Notice. Um, and I actually would love to talk to Wes and Colin at some point, actually a friend of ours, uh, Ike, Ike made this, Ike made this too. Um, he, he tuned me in that they're really good, uh, really curious drinkers, um, which is right up our alley. And, and I think I invited them along to that, uh, mezcal tasting that we did a couple of us. And so I think, I don't think, uh, I don't think they could make it, but they were, they were quite interested. So, yeah, um, we have a lot of the same friends, you know, we're yeah. in, in town. So that's kind of one of those weird things where I'm like, how, how do I not know them personally yet? But considering yeah, yeah. everybody else we know. So, all right. Next, uh, the next recommendation I have is uh, there's a, a really cool article. You could tell we're, we're Bond themed as a lot of folks are these days, but it's fun. It's uh, of the moment. And uh, we've, I think a lot of us have been appreciating Bond for, for a long time, not just uh, of the last couple of weeks. Found a really neat article on Wine Press. I think it's winepress.com. And uh, the article is basically, this is so great. Every cocktail or wine that James Bond has ever enjoyed throughout the entire series. <laughs> I saw that too. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, they literally, from Dr. No all the way through No Time to Die, and they tell you when in the movie and what he was drinking. It's in, it's incredible. I mean, they, they keep a, a tally of how many martinis. They keep a tally of, you know, when he was drinking champagne. It, it's just, it's really, it's a really great read. It's just fun. It's 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 as, it's as spirit of time as spirit of time gets. And uh, we'll link it in the show notes. I think people would get a kick out of it. That would actually be a fun show like topic to, to, you know, have the drink check be something from James Bond every time. So anyhow, well, I have two as well. And 
I said this was going to be the last I said of Vermont, but I guess it really isn't. So I I posted something, you know, kind of a congratulatory note, um, you know, on my own feed a few days ago, and I saw a a particular poster chimed in, you know, with a like, you know. And um, this guy, his name is Paco Chirichi, and he's a naval aviator and filmmaker and author. And um, I really would recommend anybody, if you're kind of interested, like I am in aviation and defense and sort of, you know, if you liked Top Gun even, um, go to Netflix and check out something called Speed and Angels. So Speed Mm. and Angels, that's a a radio call, a quick check, you know, between a couple of aircraft when they're about to, um, you know, begin like practice engagement, you know, and they'll typically, they'll brief you know, where they're going to be relative to each other when the fight starts. And the quick call is speed and angels, speed and angels from each aircraft. And once, you know, they both have that, that so speed is a reference to, you know, your airspeed, obviously. Um, angels is your altitude, you know, your uh, pre-briefed altitude. And once you make that call, speed and angels, then it can be fights on. Um, speed and angels is a really interesting documentary. It follows two young naval aviators. They're out of basic and advanced training, and they've both tracked to F-14s. This is in, I think, the maybe the very early 2000s. So it's kind of definitely in the twilight of the F-14 era. And it follows their training and what, you know, kind of the trials and, and tribulations of of their training as they, they go from, you know, student naval aviators to, you know, fangs out, blood in the mouth killers flying that jet. And it's a, it's a really neat watch. So that's the first thing I'd suggest. That sounds super interesting. I'm definitely tuning in this weekend. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, and then the other is, um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about this Bremont movement, you know, there's, again, this seems to me pretty cool. There's obviously, there's a lot of people who I think enjoy being skeptical. If you're one of those people, you know, um, who want to learn more about this and want to feel confident about this development, you know, don't look at the Bremont website. I would suggest you do something, go to uh, the Naked Watchmaker. So the Mm. Naked Watchmaker is a website and blog um, from, you know, Peter Speak, Speak Marin, sometimes he's known as. Is this, is this, Um, is this safe for work? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if you remember the watch brand, I mean, this was an eponymous watch brand that this guy stood behind, Speak Marin. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is no longer associated with that brand, but he has this website and he gets really in depth breaking down movements and production processes and watchmaking in general, like at, a, at an esoteric basic level. Um, this is, he is as legit as legit gets. Um, he's not quite the household name that somebody like a Roger Smith is, but I mean, in terms of his capabilities and like what he does, you know, I think he's up there. And he, he takes a real in-depth look at Vermont's processes and the story behind this movement and what they do. And I mean, it's technical drawings and photos and breakdowns of the manufacturing process, pictures of the machines that they're using, um, all of that stuff. Very cool. And he gets into case making you know, that Vermont does, which is another big value add for them. Sounds like I work for them. I don't. But um, I think if you want to satisfy yourself that, you know, Bremont is playing the long game and doing things right. Go to, you know, this independent observer and see what he says. I think that's, you'd be, that's really yeah. cool. I had seen some references to his, uh, uh visit 
to the wing. And uh, I didn't know there was more to, you know, checking out what his uh, kind of reactions and thoughts were. So that's a, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I would say that what he's written up is um, in significantly greater detail than what you see elsewhere. Sure. So yeah, you know, that's, um, that was a pretty cool thing. Anyway, those That's are awesome. my recommendations for, I, for today. I love them. I love them. And you know what, Matt, I'd be remiss if I didn't let people know. And I think we made a few posts, but um, the Spirit of Time uh, uh, website is up. So it's spiritoftime.co.co. So spiritoftime.co. Uh, check it out, guys. Uh, let us know what you think. We had a lot in development. And actually, Matt and I have been working behind the scenes. I think we referenced it maybe on the last episode, trying to bring some new stuff, um, which I think people will be quite excited about. We'll have more to share when it, it becomes more concrete, but uh, we're excited to share, you know, another way to deliver, you know, fun, exciting content and uh, kind of new things with everybody. And so we, we'd appreciate any, you know, support and, and feedback, of course. So spiritoftime.co, check it out. Let us know. Cool. And then last thing I have really is I, I don't know if I need to correct myself or not. I think I said Speed and Angels was available on Netflix. It's Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Yeah. If I did say Amazon before it, I'm just remembering it incorrectly chalk it up to my age but yeah amazon prime you know amazon video speed and angels so yeah give that a look it's super cool awesome. and greg that's that is all i have i hope you have an awesome weekend buddy you too man it's great to see you i feel like it's been a while i don't know if it really has been maybe it is but uh either way it's it's uh, great to see you great to catch up great to talk about you know watch news and what's going on in our lives and hope everybody uh is up for a great week as well Cool, man. Take care. Cheers. Salute. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>